0: Welcome
1: to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19
0: era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Hello, this is Carlos Pascual, and welcome to this edition of Sierra Week Conversations. These have been exclusive series with leaders in energy, politics, public policy, economics, climate change, and in this occasion, we have an opportunity to address all of these together with an extraordinary group of people. First, we have Megan O'Sullivan, Dean Kirkpatrick, Professor at the Kennedy School of Government and former Deputy National Security Advisor. Megan, what
1: a pleasure to
2: have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And then we have...
1: And finally, my colleague
0: in the energy division of IHS Market, Atul Arya, who is the chief energy strategist for the company. Atul, a pleasure once again to be with you. Uh, Thank you, Carlos. Good to be here. So, in this discussion, we're going to try to to form a a little mental matrix here. We're going to talk about economics, energy and climate change, and geopolitics, and we're going to see cross sections of issues with questions like leadership, um, American leadership in the world. What is the impact on unifying or dividing or polarizing the country? Relations with China and the Middle East, and even looking ahead to the next four years. So stick with us because we're going to have an interesting conversation. And I'm going to start with this question of polarization or unifying the country. And Miriam, I want to start with you on the issue of economy, on the economy. Given the rise in infections that we've seen in the United States, and given the controversies over stimulus package, what's the outlook economically, and will it unify the country or further divide it? Well, uh,
3: assuming the new president, Mr. Biden, can um, make some inroads and make some advances in terms of dealing with the the virus, I think that will go a long way in terms of unifying the country and getting people sort of behind this. I think right now, there's, there's none of that going on. But when we look at specific policies, um, I mean, let's say for the moment, it's, you know, it's a Biden presidency, but a Republican Senate. I think chances of a big stimulus are, are pretty dim right now. However, there is common ground. I think uh, on issues like infrastructure uh, in the past, I think the Republicans have been fairly open to this. So I can imagine a discussion between the president and the Republican Senate where they do actually pass an infrastructure bill of, of one kind or another. Now, just to give you an idea of the importance of of stimulus, we had a, a sort of a generic stimulus package in our forecast a month ago. But then we took it out because of you know, all the politics. And then actually reduced growth of 2021 by half a percentage point from 3.6 to 3.1. So if we were to do something meaningful on infrastructure or even something bigger, then I think that could have quite an impact on growth and offset a lot of the negatives from the coronavirus.
0: So we'll hang on to this point on infrastructure and come back to it. Megan, let me take you to an issue which is global and related to jobs. Um, Question of globalization. And in many cases, there's been a perception that the loss of jobs has been to um, a Chinese import or a Mexican migrant. Is this going to cause yet greater tension of, of what the direction of future international engagement, economic engagement should be.
2: Thanks, Carlos. It's a great question and and one that is relatively hard to answer right now because there are so many dimensions. I would say we're definitely going to see a shift towards global engagement generally. That's who Joe Biden is. He's an internationalist, he's somebody who believes in international institutions and engaging with the world. And so do the people who are likely to fill his cabinet. However, trade is another issue altogether. It is one where the country has really moved in the last several years, and I think we are not going to see a rewind to the pre-Trump days entirely. We will see some departures on trade with Biden. I would say um, that we're not going to see a Biden administration use trade tariffs simply as a tool of foreign policy, which was very common with President Trump, and Mm -hmm. we're not going to see such a premium put on bilateral trade relationships. We'll see a return to multilateral engagement, larger trade uh, treaties and engagement with the WTO But I do think that um, the fact that there are tens of millions of Americans worried about their jobs, worried about their futures, and really seeing trade as a part of the culprit for a downturn in their well-being means that the substance of those agreements, um, the, the Biden administration is going to focus heavily, as they said they will do, on workers' rights, on things like environment. So I do think we're not going to snap our fingers on January 20th and see you know, a complete reversal of protectionism. There's going to be some lingering effects, and that's because Trump was a symptom, um, not a cause.
0: So, uh, so let's pick up. Uh, Megan addressed one, one piece of this, workers' rights and globalization, coming back to the environment issues. Um, a divided Congress, as Nariman has pointed out, how, how easy is it going to be for uh, a President Biden to move forward his economic and climate agenda, and what of yeah. mm-hmm.
1: thanks, thanks, Carlos. Uh, I, I think it's as uh, both uh, Megan and uh, Nareen have said. You know, things are going to be not straightforward. The calculation the Democratic Party had before the election was it was a blue wave, and that hasn't really happened. You know, it's a very divided. Country and if the Senate remains with, in, in the hands of the Republicans, the legislative actions of Biden administration can do will be limited. Though I, I feel that there are a number of Republicans in the Senate who will be more aligned to doing things on climate, as there are a number of Democrats who will be less aligned. So I don't think it's a black and white picture there. Having said that, you know there are a number of regulatory actions which we expect uh, the new administration to take, including. A number of executive orders they will uh, do on day one. You know, as simple as uh, you know the methane regulation, uh, turning that over. The the fight with California on the on the fuel economy standards. You know that will that will disappear. So those things uh, and, and the investment, uh, more uh, renewable investment in the. Uh, in uh, federal lands, federal property, federal procurement. So there is a large number of things that can be done. But in terms of, sort of a game-changing, like a, you know economy-wide uh, carbon tax or carbon price, of course, that will require legislation. So I, I don't think, I would say more like a half-plus full from an environmental point of view rather than empty because there will be a number of things which will happen. And and the ball will move forward. You know We have been kind of in a bit of a limbo on climate for the last four years.
0: Interesting. So across the board, the, the term not straightforward prevails. Um, opportunities to make an impact, but not necessarily game changers, or at least easy game changers that one can, can, can see achieved. Uh, let me go on to a different topic of American leadership. And Megan, you've already mentioned the issue of alliances and multilateral engagement. What does that mean? I mean, people often have said the difference with a Biden foreign policy will be that it's multilateral. In concrete terms, what difference does that make?
2: Sure, it's definitely the number one thing we hear from Biden and his team when we talk about what an America under a Biden administration is going to look like. It's going to respect ally, allies, and uh, really, the president-elect has said this is going to be his number one priority in foreign policy: is to reestablish those relationships. So I think it means a number of things. Um, first, it means a change in rhetoric, a change in tone and tenor, and I think that will be welcome in many parts of the world. Um, the president will no longer longer refer to Europe as um, one of America's adversaries, and we'll no longer see uh, an administration that will make excuses for authoritarian regimes. But I think it will also go deeper than just rhetoric. Um, It certainly means that the transactional nature in which um, the United States treated many of its allies over the last several years will probably really uh, recede. Uh, Burden sharing, for example, is still going to be a big issue with NATO allies, but it's not going to be front and center. It's not going to be the measure of the relationship. Those conversations about paying for NATO are going to happen, as they have in previous administrations, more behind closed doors. I think it also means that the American administration under Joe Biden is going to really make more of an effort to tackle problems with the help of allies. And China is really the biggest case in point. Um, Work with allies to craft a common approach towards some of the global challenges. And find I would say, um, is there going to be a change in global politics? Yes, because now that the U.S. will be more engaged internationally, I think it opens more opportunities to deal effectively with transnational problems like pandemics, like climate change, um, like a global recession. All of those things have generally um, been the kinds of things that America has led the rest of the world in addressing. And we've been more absent uh, the last several years than we have in the past, and I think we'll see a reversal of that, which at least creates some more opportunities for tackling these big, big issues uh, before the world.
0: And indeed, uh, President-elect Biden has made climate change, one of his four top priorities, made that absolutely clear. So, bringing, bringing this back to you and the Paris Agreement, and expectations for what will happen with the Paris Agreement, and eventually, how does the United States put together a nationally determined contribution?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we do. uh, I mean, we know that uh, the U.S. will rejoin the Paris Agreement uh, on day one of the Biden presidency. And technically, it will take some time to actually be fully back on. But then there will be the question of the NDCs. And if you remember in the original timetable of Paris Agreement, Paris Accord, this was the year 2020 when, when countries were to come back and update their NDCs. That has been deferred to 2021. Just about this time next year, you know the the leaders will be meeting in Glasgow. Uh, I think there will be tremendous pressure on uh, on Biden administration, particularly from uh, within within the, the Democratic Party, to put very ambitious uh, NDCS. And you can't just put the NDCS which were originally proposed by President Obama. You know the world has moved on, technology has moved on, the U.S. has moved on, so more ambitious targets. I think we, we have a blueprint, which is the Obama climate plan, you know, 2035 decarbonizing power sector, 2050 economy by decarbonization. However, uh, it'll come back to you know, what is achievable without legislative support. So I think we are gonna see quite a lot of tension, even within the Democratic Party on how far can you go in putting NDC. But if they go back with a, just a repeat of whatever, you know, or the same thing with Obama administration President Obama had put in, I think that's going to be probably not enough. I think it needs to be much more ambitious than, than that. And I think the technology has moved on so much that I feel there are more tools in the toolkit to achieve that without legislation, but legislation will be more difficult.
0: Indeed, ambition and technology. And one other thing we talked about the other day, also was the, the experience with the Kyoto uh, Accords where the U.S. Senate voted 97 to 0 before the negotiators got on the airplane, making clear that you don't go and negotiate internationally and bring it home. You figure out what we have, what we're going to do from a domestic purpose, and you bring it to the international arena. And I think that's going to be another really important dynamic in this as well. Um, Neerman, the G20, after the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009, the G20 became kind of a board of directors on getting the global economy functioning again. Is there a prospect for that to happen?
3: You know, Carlos, I'm not that big of a fan of the G20 to be perfectly honest. With you. So I'll say that up front. Uh, its uh, its effectiveness has been, say, say spotty. Uh, let's put it that way. But I think the world is um, partly because of our own fault, you know, on the U.S. side. Partly because other things going on, a much more fractious place than than it was you know, 10, 12 years ago at the time of the global financial crisis, um, and so I think the you know it, we'll see what the G20 accomplishes now. Uh, so I, you know I'm I'm not going to hold my breath again just to kind of be clear about that, but just to come back to what Megan was saying, I think the U.S. needs to lead by example. And we've set a terrible example in the last four years in terms of policies, in terms of the tone, all those things that we've talked about. And I think, you know, from that perspective, a more multilateral approach is clearly needed, desperately needed, I would say, given the global nature of these the challenges that we're facing. But on the trade side, um, you know, I'm, I'm holding out hope that not initially, but after a while, that Mr. Biden uh, and his uh, his team will come back to some version of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We, we just saw that the, uh, the, uh, the Chinese-led uh, coalition kind of came together. It's not really a trade deal. It's it's more of a sort of geopolitical kind of animal. Uh, the trade aspects are extremely weak. The TPP or Trans-Pacific Partnership is much stronger, much better gives the US much more protection in terms of labor, in terms of environment. And so I'm hoping, and and by the way, it gives us leverage against China. So I, I'm certainly hoping that we uh, we can reconsider it in some, not in its, maybe in its current form, but some sort of changed form. I think the issue here in terms of trade is really separating out the, the China problem mm-hmm. from the rest of the world. And I think, again, Megan sort of said it very nicely. Uh, Canada is not uh, an enemy of the u s in terms of trade. Europe is not an enemy of the u s. in terms of trade. We need to work with these countries. These are our allies. Um, China is a very different challenge, and I, I totally agree and has to be approached in a very different way. but But that said, I think uh, I think we need to lead, and we need to show that leadership in the next four years.
0: So in American leadership, there's clearly an intent of multilateralism. There's certainly the opportunity and a whole range of different fora that will take place. And the question, as, as you underscored, Nariman, is example, um, demonstrating demonstration and action. So let's go to the topic of jobs and investment. And and I want to link this with the environmental sets of questions, I told because when you look at the Biden proposal, so much of the climate agenda is focused around the critical need for investment in the United States and the critical need for American job creation. Is there a bounce here to be had on the investment in clean tech and how does it play out versus continued investment in hydrocarbon sectors?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting. You know, uh, if you look at what just has happened this year during the pandemic and all the job losses. So in spite of all the support, from uh, the Trump administration on hydrocarbons, coal, and oil and gas, you know, making the deal or brokering a deal between OPEC and and Russia. In spite of all of that, you know, the oil and gas industry has lost thousands of jobs, I think over a hundred thousand jobs this year. So the market forces have actually uh, been a much bigger part of the equation than government. Now, having said that, uh, I think as Nariman said earlier, the infrastructure plan will clearly be, you know, the sort of the build back better, but build back better with a green recovery. Uh, I think where Europe has clearly taken a lead, we should see more more action from the Euro. You know, similarly here in the US. Two other things I will say: one is that you know, uh, in the last five years and and perhaps ten years, but more so in five years, the returns on the renewable investments have performed actually quite well, uh, and uh, and uh, you know, companies are seeing less volatile returns uh, and good returns. So investing in. Uh, Renewables has become a much more attractive uh, proposition. And you can see it by just looking at the international oil companies, not just the U.S. ones, but the European ones, who are investing a lot of money uh, in, in the renewables. And I think that trend is going to, that genie is out of the bottle. The other thing which I think we, we should be watching for is what does the financial community do? And here, not just the financial investors who are focusing on ESG performance, but also the regulators, you know, SEC, FERC the Federal Reserve, they're all now pushing forward with climate disclosures and climate risk. I think that that kind of train also is going to move faster under a Biden administration. So all of that will bode well uh, for, for green energy jobs. But I will say that the market ultimately will determine and, and, and we see costs coming down and technologies becoming much more you know uh, cost competitive and profitable. The private sector will invest
0: really good point on climate disclosure and climate regulation um Nerman, you you already put on the table the issue of infrastructure and when people think of infrastructure they usually think of massive capital investment given the deficit situation of the united states is it realistic
3: yeah, that's a very good question carlos but let me let me just uh, let's just talk about the the program itself and we'll talk about the financing I think there are a lot of areas. Obviously, infrastructure. Atul mentioned some, um, you know, the usual roads, bridges, blah blah blah. Is is another one. Sorry, I don't mean to sound facetious, but but a big area that I think would would swing, let's say, a lot of rural voters, in 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 a in a different direction, shall we say, would be rural Wi-Fi. I mean, Wi-Fi is a big problem uh, in rural areas, and a, and an investment that would, or infrastructure investment that w- would bring Wi-Fi to a very large portion of the US population would be to me a winner, uh, a big winner here. And I think certainly the Republicans p- could probably get on, get on board that. Um, so I think there, are, there, are, there is common ground as we said earlier, and I, I, you know, I think this is possible. Now your question about the deficit, I mean, it's an important one, the deficit has shot up, the national debt has shot up, no question. But fortunately, we have another uh, trend going on here which helps, and that is that interest rates are in the basement. So with interest rates this low, basically the burden of the debt or the interest payments of the debt which the shot up are actually lower than they were before. So the volume of debt up, the cost in terms of interest rates down, so the total is lower than it was before. Now, we, we can't get too complacent. We're in a good situation right now with the Federal Reserve helping on this score. Uh, so, this is a time in which we can afford, I think, to put in uh, a, a good deal of extra spending on things like infrastructure. Now, eventually, as interest rates rise, and they will at some point, maybe five, six years down the pike, we have to deal with this. We have to sort of scale things back. But for the moment, it is not a problem. So, I think. My view is, and I, this, is, this is a lot of academics have come on board this one, is that this is a good time to be spending on infrastructure, on education, and other aspects that will help the, not, not just in the, in the near term, but the long-term future of the U.S.
0: Let me switch from the domestic aspect of investment and in jobs to the international side. And Megan, let's go back to the, the Brighton Woods Institutions. Um, and, and a big question is going to be, in the current kind of environment, post-COVID, given the economic contraction, do they have the capacity to effectively lead globally on investment and job creation? Neerman mentioned the regional comprehensive economic partnership that China has led. Um, that's moved in one direction. Um, do the traditional uh, institutions like the World Bank and the IMF have the capacity to be the kind of stimulus that's needed or or do we need reinvention in this area?
2: Yes, I mean, there is a debate about this, particularly let's talk about it in the context of climate, which we've spent a lot of time on in this conversation. But um, there are certainly people who strongly argue that these institutions are responsible for a lot of the excesses of um, the last several decades. And they've created a lot of the problems with growth in the environment. And so there's an argument that we need entirely new institutions. I personally am more in the camp of, these institutions need to be reformed um, in order to play the kind of role that's necessary going forward. We certainly do need global institutions um, because so many of our challenges are global in nature. But again, just sticking with the example of climate change, if we look at WTO, you know, there are many ways in which the WTO is not really well suited to an era where a lot of countries and a lot of the population care deeply about climate. For example, Right now, you know, fossil fuel subsidies are not, Considered to be a trade disadvantage uh, or advantage, the WTO just doesn't consider them um, to be something along those lines. Um, secondly, uh, in the terms of climate, there's going to be really a run-up with the WTO in the not so distant future. We have Europe talking, uh, talking actually committing to putting in place carbon border adjustment mechanisms, which would essentially be tariffs on goods that come from countries that don't have a price on carbon. Um, to level set the playing field. And this will be a problem for the WTO if changes aren't made. Now, the IMF and the World Bank, they've tried over the last many years to try to readjust the way they work in order to acknowledge that climate is a big issue. However, um, there's still some distance to go. These institutions, I think, can play, should play a very big role in helping countries you know, finance infrastructure that is climate- resilient and low carbon, um, they should really be playing, I would say, an even bigger role in helping countries that are very dependent on fossil fuels move away from them. And of course, the IMF and the World Bank have been famous or infamous for the conditionality that they placed on countries in order to get financial support. And that conditionality could go, you know, the, the Washington consensus is out of favor. But now maybe there's more of a role for those institutions in helping countries adopt policies which can further growth and also at the same time uh, be climate friendly. So there's a lot of room for evolution or reform, um, even if you don't embrace a more radical vision of these institutions.
0: Indeed, interesting from all three of you, the importance of institutions and their roles and leveraging investments, the role regulation can play. But as well the importance of creativity, um, for example, the issue of internet connections to rural areas, climate, and global investment um, will play an important part of this issue. So let's switch to China. And we've already been discussing China extensively. But uh, Nerman here, I want to begin with you. And there's been a lot of talk about the so-called potential decoupling of the U.S. and the Chinese economy. Is that realistic or is it fanciful?
3: Well, I wouldn't use the word decoupling, but clearly the relationship has to change. It's So far, I think it's fair to say it's been sort of a one-way street or largely a one-way street. And I think it's not just the Trump administration who has said this, but US businesses feel that, many of them. And Europe increasingly is feeling that it's a one-way street with China. So it has to change. Um, and it has to be more equitable, um, and China needs to really stop hiding behind this we're developing nation kind of uh, uh, veil, uh, shall we say, or however you want to articulate it. Now, the hope is, again, that with a new president who is more multilateral, who is more open-minded about international relations, that the Chinese may, at this point, rather than playing a defensive game, you know, play a more constructive uh, kind of game. But it's very clear that um, I don't think we're going back to the way it used to be, because nobody wants that. But I think it can evolve. It doesn't have to be a confrontation. It doesn't necessarily have to be decoupling. I mean, decoupling suggests that these two, say the US and the Chinese economy, pull apart. But the business relations are still very strong between these two nations. And, and, and to come back to, uh, I think a point that Atul was making about market forces. Market force is driving this. Are very strong, so the question then becomes: the challenge for the new administration is to say, how do you mold this in a way that it's it's not a one-way street, that the U.S. is protected to some extent, but also gets its fair share in a in a um, in a sort of symbiotic kind of relationship uh, with China. So I, again, decoupling is a little bit of a strong word. Certainly, it's going to change. It has to change. If it doesn't, then then definitely we're talking decoupling.
0: So point taken, market forces are strong, and Megan, um, what also is strong is the vast litany of issues between the United States and China on the security agenda, Um, the Hong Kong security law, military exercises around Taiwan, conflicts in the South China Sea, the consulates in Chengdu and Houston, and Huawei, and TikTok, and where do you start
2: Right. I mean, almost the way you asked the question, Carlos, one could interpret it that, you know, you're assuming that these issues will all be addressed or resolved. And 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 I uh, would think that it's actually not going to be the case, that these mostly are going to be issues that will be managed over the course of the coming years. And all of them are going to continue to be enduring frictions in the U.S.-China relationship. So I would say that China is one of the areas where a President Biden is probably going to differ not so much than President Trump. There's been, as you know, a real shift in the approach towards China that Nariman mentioned. Um, This is maybe one of the only really true bipartisan issues in Washington is that we need to be more um, competitive with China. I would um, just highlight a few areas where I do think a Biden administration will be different than a Trump administration because I think the overall tone and tenor of the relationship is going to be similar. The first is that the the Trump administration's uh, policy towards China has And generally uniform, sort of a confrontational approach across the board. I think the Biden administration is going to look more for establishing a long-term relationship that cooperates where it's possible and is competitive where it's necessary. And so I do think we'll see a little bit more of an effort to identify and seize upon the minority of areas where there can be some cooperation and climate stands out um, among those, I would say, for sure. The other um, approach we're I think, or the other uh, factor that I think will be different. As I mentioned before, the Trump administration, very unilateral in its approach towards China. Um, And the Biden administration will definitely try to get allies and friends and partners to join them to define things like common standards uh, for Chinese technology and common approaches towards unfair Chinese trade practices. All of those things, I think, will involve a much larger effort. And thirdly, I would say Um, Certainly, I expect there to be more of a focus in the Biden administration on increasing American competitiveness as a core element of our China strategy. You know, the sense that we spend all this time trying to influence China's behavior, but the thing that influences China's behavior the most, at least this is my opinion, is its perception of American strength. And so by enhancing our own competitiveness in technology, um, our economy, those things are going to see be uh, perceived as part of our geostrategic orientation as well.
0: So, so, Megan has laid out the perfect question for you. Can we can we cooperate on climate change, and can we compete on clean tech?
1: I think that's kind of what will happen. You know, that as, as Megan said, the tone and tenor will be different. Uh, I think on climate, you know, climate has to be a multilateral cooperation because it cannot be. And China is the number one emitter of. Greenhouse gases, so China has to be part of the equation. I mean, one thing uh, you know, I, I'm wondering is that there used to be this major polluter group of countries. I think around 10 countries. Will they come together, and China, of course, will be part of that. So there'll be cooperation in some of those. And China has now kind of upped the game a bit by putting the 2060 zero. Uh, net zero target, you know, so that puts some pressure on, on the U.S. in particular. But I would say to, a, to, to an extent, not everywhere, and one area where, you know, we will probably see competition is around the issue of clean tech as and, and the jobs related to clean tech. China has, you know, the majority of manufacturing of tech you know, solar panels, wind turbines, uh, batteries, EVs, China is number one in pretty much everything. And we have seen from Europe already the first salvos on this front by putting out some clear policy on made in Europe, policy on clean tech. I think we're going to see the same thing in the US. Made in US, why can't we make some of these clean technologies in the US? So there will be some cooperation more on the, the broad umbrella, you know, uh, agreements on, on the targets and commitments, but then some competition, particularly when it comes down to clean energy jobs.
0: So, China, reality of market forces, managing the difference, seeking for those opportunities of where we can actually advance to, together. And we come to yet another, um, let's say, challenging area the Middle East. And, and Megan, uh, I have to obviously start with you, given your experience in the Middle East and Iran. Um, We recently heard of uh, Iran's increased um, importation of nuclear materials potentially being four months away from the development of a nuclear weapon. We've seen press reports about the Trump administration, considering whether there might be some form of military action even before President Trump leaves. And inevitably, a Biden administration will have to come back to addressing the nuclear agreement and what it means for the neighbors and what it means for the resumption of oil exports from Iran. Give us a sense of how you would approach these issues.
2: Sure. Um, Let me do it by making one assumption which may not be accurate, and that is that the Trump administration doesn't do anything between today and January 20th to make it more difficult for the Biden presidency to reinitiate negotiations with Iran. It's certainly an area where President Trump uh, feels he has a legacy um, in the maximum pressure campaign the Trump administration put in place against Iran, one that he might want to make it difficult to reverse. So I certainly think that's one of the areas I'm I'm watching uh, for the coming weeks or close to two months. But I mean, a Biden administration has the, the vice, the president-elect has made it very clear that his intention is to go back to the nuclear agreement, the JCPOA, if Iran comes back to the table. So that sounds very simple. It sounds like a very big departure. But as your question intimated, I think this is going to be a lot harder than it sounds for both sides. On the Iranian side, as you noted, there's been a lot of activity that the Iranian have moved away from the accord, not dramatically, but enough that now we're realizing that they have you know, moved quite far away from some of the very important particulars. Uh, there was a, a report by the International Atomic Energy Agency out just a few days ago that said Iran has maybe 12 times the enriched uranium that is allowed under the accord and that, that the level of enrichment is far beyond what would be allowed under the Accord. These are pretty significant things, and Iran would need to actually get rid of that Uh, in some fashion and come back to the table in order for the Biden administration to do as it said it would. Um, That'll be hard for Iran, particularly in an election year where uh, you have a presidential election in June. On the Biden administration side, it sounds easy to come back to the table, um, but we have to keep in mind that there's a lot of pressure and, and some of Biden's own advisors have acknowledged that the old deal doesn't seem as sufficient any longer because time has passed and some deadlines are now looming. And so I think that the United States and maybe even some of our allies are not going to be that satisfied to go back to the same accord. They're going to want to extend some time frames. They're going to want to broaden the accord to take things like Iran's regional behavior into account. The Iranians have no desire to renegotiate any element of this, but there'll be a lot of pressure on the American side. So I guess um, just to wrap up and, and touch on the point of oil exports, which is obviously very important. I think that it is possible we could see a new understanding but it is going to take a lot longer than people think. I certainly think it's not going to happen until the later part of 2021 at the earliest. Um, and of course, so large volumes of Iranian oil, uh, I wouldn't expect them to come on the market before then. But I do think um, we're going to need, in order to get a new accord, we're going to need a, to see a shift in the European attitude. And some of the facts that you led with in your question might be the, the predicate to a to, uh, uh, Europe taking. A little bit of a tougher stance on Iran than it has uh, since the Trump administration pulled out of the accord.
0: Interesting. So, uh, so let's, let's continue with the issue of oil and the surrounding um, uh, to Iran's neighbors, the oil exporting countries. Oil has not been at the top of um, President Biden's agenda for his administration. Is there a way to have a conversation between the Gulf states? on issues of hydrocarbons with a Biden administration that could forge some kind of cooperation or understanding.
1: I think it's going to be quite, quite difficult. And as you know, Megan is alluding that if Iran uh, Iranian oil comes into the market, the timing couldn't be worse. I mean, think about it. You know, uh, there is already so much excess supply, and and, you know, depending on how quickly we recover from pandemic and oil demand recovers, uh, that will have a pretty big impact on additional oil. Not just from Iran, but there are other places uh, like Venezuela potentially uh, adding adding more oil. And the other other factor here, uh, you know, Carlos, as we all know, you know, this year based on some numbers I just saw, the the OPEC total revenue oil revenue for OPEC will be just over three hundred billion dollars. Last year it was six hundred billion dollars. In twenty twelve it was one point two trillion dollars. So you know, think about how much uh, loss of revenue. Uh, OPEC and, of course, the Middle Eastern countries have had uh, because of the drop in oil demand. Uh, And and given that the U.S. oil supply, so I think if the U.S. administration focuses on oil, the first priority will be to focus on oil domestically and and bring back those jobs to the extent uh, they can. I think ultimately it will be supply and demand and prices will determine that. So it's very, very difficult. I think the other really important question for the Middle East will be uh, this idea of transitioning to a new economy—I know every time we hear about that—and of course now there are these Vision 2030 uh, goals in Saudi Arabia and other countries—it's not being very successful. So, and and given where the oil price is, I think it's going to be uh, even hugely challenging. Uh, I don't see oil uh, as a big factor in in the U.S. Middle East in relation, at least in the immediate future, with the exception of what uh, Megan is seeing relative to Iran and you know, allowing Iran to export its oil.
0: And, and Nerman, um, let's continue from Atul's point about the decline in oil revenues and the implications for transition in oil-producing states. How vulnerable are they, given the losses in revenues, um, or are, are they in a position where they have sufficient capacity to borrow and and to finance themselves based on their sovereign wealth funds.
3: Well, they're very vulnerable. I mean, there's no question that they're very vulnerable. And Atul talked about the, the collapse in revenues that even in the last couple of years, but, but going back a long way, 10 years. But if you look at the growth rates, global growth rates this past year, um, the Middle East, has been the hardest hit region in terms of global growth. Now, the, the drop in global GDP will be about four and a half percent in 2020. In terms of the Middle East, it's over nine percent. So that gives you just some, it's double what the what the global average is. And it's very simple, again, coming back to Atul's point, that the break-even value, break-even price in terms of Brent price of a barrel of oil uh, for a lot of these countries, is well above fifty dollars a barrel. And of course, as you know the the oil price is still just barely above forty. And so you've got many, many countries in that region that are struggling uh, in terms of their um, budgets. And a lot of the development plans, a lot of the um, programs that are help to you know, help employment, help education, these are in in serious trouble so i would say these economies are in uh in 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 major major sort of stress at this point uh next year will probably be a little bit better because you know our forecast is oil prices will gradually come back to around 50 by the middle of uh, uh by the middle of 2021 but even so that's a very low number for countries like iran where the break even is over 100. And so, I mean, Iran, aside from the the points that both Megan and Atul have made, is struggling. Its economy is struggling, independent of sanctions, independent of anything else. I mean, that that oil price is just a disaster for them. So I think the the region is very challenged and uh, it'll change. It'll improve somewhat, but
0: it's going to take a while. I I can't help but... But be struck by the two words "struggle" and "vulnerability," not just for the Middle East itself, but for the relationship as well as being a critical factor. Now, uh, there, there are two other groups of questions I, I want to ask you, and and let's let's be brief on these. But I think it's important to touch on them if we can. The first is on energy transition, and Otto, I'll, I'll begin with you. Some have indicated that 120 or so countries have made commitments to net zero emissions by 2050, or at least are in process. And then we have China um, indicating net zero by 2060, and now a Biden administration taking that position. Does it take, Does that change the dynamic of energy transition?
1: Well, I think what, what has happened is that you know, if you think about the vocabulary and net zero, vocabulary you know we were not talking about net zero even four years back and now it is the world now everybody is talking about it so i think it does change it and i would say briefly you know i i, I think the narrative has changed now it's the power of the narrative you know the narrative in the trump administration was all denying climate science you know not engaging in conversation with the with the, uh, with the partners have. you know I think that's going to change. There are still some outliers out there. You know, there is Australia, there is India. I mean, there's some other very big players in the in the energy transition space who will need to be brought in. Uh, but uh, but uh, that's all the challenge and, and also the opportunity for the Biden administration would be uh, with a new narrative can they bring in and really create a global impetus on uh, on net zero.
0: And Megan, you've written books about geopolit- the geopolitics of energy transition. Um, we we can't go into the book version, but um, snapshot of what what kind of surprises might we say?
2: I think if we could uh, get a glimpse of what the end state was going to be, where the energy transition would take us, we'd see a very different geopolitical world. If we imagine a world where oil has little or or no value, obviously, we're going to have different alliances and, and different conflicts, all those types of things. But I think what's very interesting from our perspective is really the geopolitics of the transition, of the things that countries and companies and even individuals are doing Doing now to advance or impede the energy transition. I think that is, is shaping politics, uh, global politics in particular. Just um, try to imagine in the very short term, the Biden administration has made it clear that it intends to infuse American foreign policy with climate. Um, that sounds pretty straightforward, but it's well beyond uh, the Paris Accord. It's talking about using American instruments of power to advance climate objectives in every relationship. And that will be a very different world. it will be a world where diplomats are talking a lot more about climate than they are about counterterrorism or about nonproliferation. And so, again, we can see how this will affect the world. In terms of surprises, um, there are likely to be many, just very briefly. I think the Middle East could be one place that we're surprised. I agree with what Nariman said about the vulnerability of the Middle East right now. But I do think that going forward, depending on what technologies come about, if we have carbon sequestration technologies, that the Middle East um, could actually be the last man standing, or at least a couple of those countries, in a, a transitioned energy world. And so the Middle East is one place where I think we might see some uh, surprises. Interesting. Interesting.
0: Um, so Neumann, central bankers and climate.
3: Well, um, central bankers, I think, have very limited tools in terms of dealing with climate change. They can, they can talk a good talk, they can put some moral suasion into it, but the tools that they have at their disposal are pretty limited in terms of climate change i think financial markets very different story i think they can put some pressure on financial markets implicit pressure and i think you know financial markets you know, big funds etc could begin to put pressure on companies and governments as well in terms of the climate agenda but central banks on their own i think it's it's fairly limited but in conjunction with with um, you know what the kind of moral suasion say, that they can bring to bear on, on financial actors that could have an impact?
0: So for energy transition and climate, we'll say uh, a change in pace given what's happened in the world and the number of actors that have come together, surprises that are going to come into that. And let's look ahead four years, right? So I'll ask you the impossible questions here. Um, but quick snapshots of what you think, of what might develop over this period. And Nairman, I'll just start from you. Snapshot, economic, U.S. economic growth and its impact on the global economy.
3: Okay. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of assumptions, three assumptions. Assuming a vaccine that's effective, number one. Assuming some stimulus, number two, infrastructure, whatever. And very importantly, and we haven't talked about this, Assuming a a much more sensible immigration policy by the U.S. that actually allows immigrants, especially educated immigrants into the U.S., we could achieve a growth of three and a half to four percent over a two, three year period. That is achievable. And that could have a substantial impact on the global economy. We're still somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the global economy. So it could could definitely give a boost uh, to global growth.
0: And Atul, um, on climate and energy and how that balances out in US policy.
1: Yeah, I would say watch for regulation. Market and technology will continue to surprise us. Uh, you know, it has surprised us in the last few years. And as a technologist, I would say that we are generally, you know, more optimistic in the short term and more pessimistic in the long term. And reality will be somewhere in between. So things which we think will take. A very long time may happen happen faster, Uh, very very significant change from the last four years.
0: And Megan, um, respect for and the impact of American diplomacy.
2: Well, the short answer is to say, I think things can only get better for American diplomacy. It's been a really tough uh, few years. You've had institutions like the State Department gutted. You'd have a president who undercut a lot of his, his diplomats. And you had um, diplomacy actually working against other tools uh, uh, like military presence. We see, we see this in Afghanistan where the president um, has announced uh, a withdrawal of troops while at the same time authorizing. Rising diplomats to try to come to a peace deal that You know, troops are their only leverage. So I think things can only get better for American diplomacy. I think we'll see a resuscitation of it. We'll see it rise in the toolkit that America uses abroad. I think the open question is, how eager will other countries be to accept American leadership? I think many countries will look at the the vote um, that happened in the United States will welcome a Biden win, but will note that there were tens of millions of Americans who um, voted for a different path. And So it is conceivable that the president after Biden could re-embrace some of the approaches that we saw under President Trump. And I think there might be some wariness to really just cede to American leadership. Uh, So I think, you know, diplomats will have their work cut out for them. That's for sure.
0: Indeed, um, the words inflection point seem like such an understatement. Now, given this discussion and dialogue and when you put the pieces together of COVID, the economy, energy transition, climate change, instability in different parts of the world, the battle for influence and the uncertainty of what might happen for the future and the fact that you do have a very polarized country, would they, they leave us with the sense of so much change that could occur and then the uncertainty that lies shrouded around that. But it also, it's interesting with the discussion that, you, that the three of you have put forward, it gives you a sense that possibilities exist to use the tool, the institution of diplomacy, of technology, of investment to start to take the initiative and drive change and not simply respond to what has been opposed as a, as a result of the COVID pandemic. And I can't thank you enough for sharing those views. What a fascinating conversation. Megan O'Sullivan, Alaria, and Nariman Beveridge, thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks again for tuning into another Syra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at CeraWeek.com.